I've been anticipating for a while. I know we have as a staff team. This being our first class of our Grow course. So I'm in faith. I'm in faith tonight. What God is going to do, not just this evening, but these next 12 months as we gather together on Wednesday evenings. I sent an email out um, yesterday informing the hunger leaders about the Grow course, and I received one email back from Rafael Gavilon. He said, the Grow course, what type of Grow is it? Is it growth like this? And he had a photo of a little seedling. Below that was another photo. Or is it growth like this? And he had a picture of a sequoia forest. Or, and then he had a third picture, is it growth like this? And he sent a picture of a giant sequoia. I don't know if you can see that up here. We can see the little people below there. Two people, with their, one with their hands raised. Or is it growth like this? May I suggest this evening, this is the type of growth that we are looking for and aiming for in this course. Giant sequoia-like growth. You know anything about redwoods? It takes a while for them to grow. It takes patience, and so it will for us as well tonight. But with steady, hard work, I believe we can trust God for sequoia-like growth as we study God's word over these next 12 months. A lot of our growth will depend on the effort that you put forth. Sanctification, growth, and godliness is a cooperative effort with the Holy Spirit. So for we must put forth the effort and the time and the energy. And you are doing that and demonstrating that by being here this evening. So here's our confidence that all the energy and the time we're going to put forth is going to be worth it. Why? Because the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not only does God's Word reveal our thoughts, not only does God's Word convict us, it does something else as well. God's Word grows us. It brings about growth and change in our lives. Listen to this text, this passage from Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I went to college not too far from one of the hottest places on earth called Death Valley. If you've ever been there or seen photographs, it's not a whole lot to look at. It's sub-sea level terrain surrounded by parched, ragged mountain outcroppings. But when the scarce winter rains come to Southern California, to Death Valley, something happens. The desert floor is transformed. You see, the seeds that lay beneath the parched, baked terrain of Death Valley sprout. And new life emerges. 
And suddenly, the floor of Death Valley, for a brief time, is covered and clothed. What a picture. When God washes us with his word. It's a picture of vibrant life and growth. Perhaps this evening you feel a little dry, a little parched. Perhaps just, you would say, unfruitful or unproductive in your Christian life. If so, we are trusting the Lord this evening, that his word will get stuff done in your life. love this quote from Pastor Mike Bullmore. He says, All the images of Scripture, whether they are of swords and hammers and fire, or the more gentle images of rain and seed, are all images of things that get stuff done. Every one of them. God wants to get stuff done in your life as you place yourself before his word and diligently study it. As you're continually exposed, immersed, renewed, and transformed in his word, we're trusting God to sprout seeds. And these seeds are going to feed you and nourish you. But you know what? They're going to produce seed and food to nourish others as well as you in turn minister to others the word of God. But here's the reality. We don't live in a time-lapse photography world. It'll take effort, time, and patience. But you stick with it, there's going to be a lot of fruit. With that in mind, let's just pray for that fruit right now as we begin. Dear Lord, I do confess this evening, I feel a little parched. It has been a challenging day. I, oh Lord, am in need of your word this evening and of your spirit to strengthen me and to illuminate your word. And that is my prayer for each and every person here, that your word would be proven to be living and active in our hearts, that there would be an anticipation that would grow this evening. There would be a faith that would be imparted that as we put ourselves before your word, as we hear your word, Lord, there will be change in those areas of our lives which we are trusting you for. So Lord, use your word this night, this evening, to get stuff done, to produce growth that will be lasting, fruit that is tangible, that can be tasted, not only by us, but others as well in our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you are aware, in our GROW course, we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians, inductively. In fact, there are only two possible approaches to studying the Word of God. It's the inductive approach, and what's often called as well, the inductive approach, and also the deductive approach. Some of you may be familiar with those terms. Others may not be as familiar. So I want to briefly take some time to explain the difference between the two approaches to Scripture. Number one, the deductive approach. If you take your notes and you see on this one page here, you'll see a diagram in the top there that will help summarize what we're speaking about. You see at the top, deduction. What is the deductive approach? Well, it works from a previously 
accepted premise. From a conclusion, a generalization, the whole. And then searches for verses that seem to support your premise or generalization. But here's the issue with the deductive approach. Your premise just may be wrong. Practically anything can and has been proved, proved by quoting scripture, by giving a proof text. Even an atheist can find a proof text in scripture. I found three of them. In Psalm 10, Psalm 14, and Psalm 53, where it says, quote, there is no God. It's there. You see, every statement in the Bible is truly recorded. Not every statement is true. Some statements quoted in Scripture are from Satan, the deceiver. Some are from the wicked, as is being quoted in those three Psalms. Perhaps you've heard this oft-quoted, amusing string of proof texts. Quoting from Matthew 27.5, He, that is Judas, went and hanged himself. Go and do likewise. Luke 12.37, John 13.27 says, And do quickly what you are going to do. Well, these are silly examples. Church is much at stake here when it comes to how we approach studying the Word of God. Issues that are relevant and even hot topics today in our society and culture, even in the evangelical world. Is homosexuality permissible in Scripture? What are the roles of men and women, of church leadership in Scripture? Are all the spiritual gifts alive and active for today? And many others as well. You see, our only safeguard against the deductive proof text approach is found in the inductive approach. And that is found in the bottom of your diagram. Induction starts with the parts. It starts with the particulars. It's the opposite of deduction. By the process of examining the parts, the particulars, the verses found in your Bible, we then seek to establish a general principle. So it begins with the parts and then reasons to the universal or whole. You'll see in the left parts of your diagram here, the induction approach, okay? Well, how do we get from the parts to the whole? We see three steps here. We observe. For us, we're going to be observing Scripture. We're going to spend the next two months, November, December, observing the book of Ephesians. What does the book of Ephesians say? Then after that, we're going to spend six months, probably January through June, analyzing the component parts of of Ephesians. We're going to go chapter by chapter, breaking it down part by part, paragraph by paragraph. In the last month or two, we're going to synthesize. We're going to put all the parts back together. Why? That we may have the theme of Ephesians. That we may have the principles and generalizations that are taught in Ephesians. So we start with the inductive into the process of discovery, which we are on the grow course, we will then reach the top. Conclusions regarding the message and themes of Ephesians. And from there, we can then teach others about Ephesians. We can do it deductively. 
We can then explore themes of ecclesiology, of the church in Ephesians, of marriage in Ephesians, what Ephesians has to say about the Trinity. But we don't start with our own premise. We start with the Word of God inductively and work towards generalizations and truths. How many of you have read the textbook Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem? Okay, many of you have. If not, perhaps you've read other systematic theologies of the like. Maybe you've read Bible Doctrine, a little slimmed-down version of that. Well, how are truths presented in systematic theology? Is it primarily inductively or deductively? Got two choices. 50-50 here. Take a guess. Deductively. Right. What we have in systematic theology is the fruit of inductive study presented to us deductively. Deduction is not bad, but you have to start with the right premise. And how do you get the right premise? You begin inductively, studying the Word of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So systematic theology is taught deductively. So are most theology and seminary courses as well. But to get there, we must start with the inductive to be sure that we have the correct premise. I hope that makes sense. I want to give you a little background of what we're doing um, this evening and in this course. We must start with the inductive approach. Well, the inductive study has four basic steps are listed underneath that diagram in your notes. Four basic steps. Number one, observation. What does the passage say? Number two, interpretation. What did the passage mean to the original hearers? What was the original author's intent? Interpretation. Number three, application. And by extension, what does this text mean to my personal life, relationships, and church, society as a whole? And fourth, proclamation. What does the passage mean? How is this truth to be shared in personal conversation in teaching venues, and in preaching. So observation, interpretation, application, then proclamation. When you come on a Sunday, what do we do? We preach sermons, and in doing so, you are primarily witnessing the fourth step, the proclamation of the Word of God, right? Now hopefully you're going to hear of all four elements in our preaching. You're going to hear our observations, our interpretation, as well as receive application. So hopefully those elements are included in our preaching. But primarily, our goal is proclamation and application. So the emphasis is on number three, right? And number four, in our inductive steps. But what you don't see when we preach are those eight to ten hours that we spend each week doing steps one and two. Observation and interpretation. The very steps that Jason Subblefield is doing this week and has been for several weeks as he prepares for preaching this Sunday. That's what you don't see. We want you to see it. Oh, it's arduous. It's hard work. Oh, but it's glorious as well. If you've ever been to, say, Universal Studios or perhaps you've received a VIP pass at a concert or theatrical production. 
you may have received a backstage pass. What is a backstage pass? It's a first-hand glimpse, isn't it, of what is happening behind the scenes. That's what we're doing when we do inductive study. We're going behind the scenes of our Bible handbooks, our systematic theology, our teaching, and we're going directly to the source itself. We're going to the Word to discover what God has to say about Himself, yourself, and others. Nothing could be more important nor glorious than this, that we may develop our own what personal convictions when it comes to the Word of God. Why? Because it's so easy, isn't it, to parrot the convictions of others. Prayerfully, hopefully here at Palm Vista, we're not teaching heresy. But the question is, how do you know (laughs) that we're not teaching heresy? Inductive Bible study is critical to knowing. It's imperative not only to protect us from heresy, but it's also important to guard our hearts from legalism as well. From legalism. It helps distinguish. And close out, thanks, buddy. So what is the function? That of study it helps protect us from heresy, but also from legalism as well. It helps us distinguish between what is principle and what is practice. Distinguish between principle, which is laid out in Scripture, and the practice, which is the application of the principle. Thus, we can sort out for ourselves if courtship, if homeschooling, is biblical. Or what exactly is biblical about courtship? Or even homeschooling. And not to confuse the practice of courtship with the principles that lay behind it of sexual purity, of integrity, of loving one another. You see, inductive study does not assure us that we'll all come to the same answer. We may not. But what it does, it drives us back to the text from which we get our principles, our doctrine, and thus our practices as well. Well, that's a lot. You may say, okay, Corey, you got me. That's cool. I'm down on inductive study. Okay, I'm with you. I'm sold. Well, why the book of Ephesians? Well, firstly, I think it lends itself so well to this inductive study, especially for those, like all of us, who want to hone our skills and hone this craft. Well, first of all, it's short, right? Well, kind of short, right? Six chapters, okay, not too bad. It lends itself well to be read in one setting, right? It's a letter. It's also easily dividable as well. The first few chapters of Ephesians are simply the indicative, i.e., what is true about us in Christ. That's the first three chapters. The second three chapters are the imperatives. How we then should walk in Christ. So it's neatly divided in half between the indicative, what is and what should be true of us as Christians, and the last three, but then how this informs how we actually live. How we actually walk out the Christian life. How we then behave. I've already given you some of the answers, okay? Okay? I'll give you that. I'm not going to give you a whole lot more, okay? But I did divide it for you. I want to give you a little jump start, okay? You got the first division right there, all right? There are about 35 directives 
are imperatives in Ephesians. And they're all found in the last three chapters. Thus, Ephesians serves as a wonderful model of how to teach, how to be gospel-centered, how the gospel then should inform our practice, how the gospel then should inform our speech, our marriages, our parenting, our relationships. Secondly, in the book of Ephesians, secondly, it's just radically Christ-centered. Hopefully you read it through once or twice in the setting already. Hopefully you noticed that Christ is like just dripping from every sentence and verse. I mean, every paragraph, I believe, just about has a reference to Christ and to his exaltation. Did a little study today and counted 45 times that Christ is mentioned by name in the book of Ephesians. He's mentioned more than that through pronouns and other verbiage, but Christ alone is mentioned 45 times. How about that phrase as well that we see throughout Ephesians? especially in the first three chapters. This phrase, in Christ. That's going to be an important phrase that we're going to mine in the months to come. That phrase, in Christ, is found roughly 35 times in the book of Ephesians. And it's one of our key interpretive points that we'll get to. Not only is this book radically Christ-centered, you notice as well, it's a wonderful portrait of the triune God, of the Trinity. In this book, we see God the Father, his purpose and plan. We see the Son, the salvation which he brings, and his exaltation. We also see the work of the Spirit, don't we, a lot in this book. We see all three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity, working together in the book of Ephesians. So, you want to understand the Trinity better? Look to the book of Ephesians. Thirdly, Ephesians is also church-centric as well. It has a wonderful, rich ecclesiology. It's through the church that God's wisdom and glory is manifest. Do you desire to see the church as God sees the church? Do you want to know the cosmic implications, the cosmic implications of your service in relationships in the local church? Do you want to? Look to the book of Ephesians. In the words of one theologian and commentator, Peter O'Brien, the letter to the Ephesians is one of the most significant documents ever written. That's high praise. It's also known, well known to be John Calvin's favorite letter. And in these coming months, hopefully we're going to see why. But tonight we're going to start with the first step of this inductive method. We're going to start with observation. What does Ephesians say? Observation entails four primary questions that are also in your notes. The four questions is a literary question. First of all, as we survey this book, what kind of literature is it? Secondly, the historical question. Who wrote it? When was it written? Thirdly, the content question. What are the big ideas? We're we looking at words, repetition, and themes in this book. I've already mentioned a few. Then fourthly, the structure question. How is the book organized? What is the skeleton from which everything hangs in this book? These observation questions are going to be asked at the book level and later on at the paragraph level as well. And they're paramount to our interpretation of this book. And by doing so, I trust this book's going to come to life. You're going to see the forest through the trees. And there are a lot of trees in Ephesians. There are a lot of long, complicated sentences 
in the book of Ephesians. As a child, I remember eating my bowl of cereal while staring at the cereal box in the morning. I know it's sad, but I was the only child. I didn't have a lot to do, okay? At the breakfast table. I still remember some of the photos on that cereal box. Usually be a photo of this ultra-white milk cascading down from a pure glass pitcher splashing on the cereal in that deep red juicy strawberries that are floating generously in the milk. You got the picture? Then to the side of the cereal bowl, there's always a banana and two overlapping pieces of toast with slightly melted butter. And then, of course, you also had to have, lastly, your fresh squeezed glass of orange juice. I would look at that picture... And then I looked down at my Tupperware bowl of plain cereal on a rubber placemat. You know what? I felt cheated. <laughs> I felt cheated. I remember the My breakfast never looked near anything like what I saw on the cereal box. Same cereal. It just lacked the placement. It was part of a balanced meal. In fact, usually, if you watch one of these commercials that have his imagery, it would say Cheerios or fill in the blank. Part of a well-balanced, nutritious breakfast. Part of a well-balanced, nutritious breakfast. See, I had the cereal, and it was part of a balanced meal. Just the other parts of the breakfast that made a whole were missing. (laughs) Okay, in my case. Perhaps you've experienced that when you've gone to the Word of God. Maybe you're looking for a, you know, a little devotional nugget for Scripture to get you going for the day or to keep you going. Kind of like you would go to the book of Proverbs. A little short saying or aphorism. But you're going to an epistle in the book of Ephesians, to a letter. And if you miss the context, you miss that which informs and interprets your entire text that you're reading. And then you wonder why you know, why does that person, that, that, they're looking at the same text. They seem to get so much more out of the text than I do. Why can't I see that? Why don't I see that? They see strawberries. They see toast. They see bananas and freshly squeezed orange juice. And all I see when I go to the text is stale cereal. You say, what's up? I don't get it. Well, if we get these four questions, this inductive method, you will see and be able to interpret the text in its full context. You're going to have a full meal. You're going to have a well-balanced, nutritious breakfast when you sit down to Scripture. A breakfast that you won't soon forget. So with that said, tonight we're going to cover the first two questions. I'm going to then set you up to answer the last two questions as homework. The four questions that we're to ask of the text as we observe and survey the book of Ephesians. So let's begin. The first question is the literary question. What kind of literature is the book of Ephesians? What is it? Is it poetry? Narrative? Eschatological? Parables? 
It's a letter. Fancy word, it's an epistle. It is a letter. Okay, you're doing well. That's pretty easy, huh? All right? It has a customary sender, right? Verse 1, and recipient. It's followed by a greeting there in verse 2. I see that. Then we have this little thing called a eulogy in verses 3 through 14, a praise there. Then it has a thanksgiving, which is customary to Paul's letters. Then it has the body of the text. And I also see what seems to be a pretty standard closing, right? In our final greetings, chapter 6, right? Customary closing. And even a benediction there in verse 23 and 24. So yeah, okay, it's a letter. That's helpful. It is a letter. I realize that receiving a handwritten letter is kind of a increasingly rare thing in our digital age, but surely you've sometime in your life received a written letter, right? What do you do when you receive a letter? A letter from your girlfriend or your boyfriend, your fiancé, your wife, your husband, your child. What do you do? A handwritten letter. Of course. You read a sentence or a paragraph, and you put it down. And the next day, you read another paragraph. Maybe the next week, another paragraph. Maybe by about a month, you've read the entire letter, right? No! You read the letter in one sitting because it's a letter. We have a letter to us. Not just to the Ephesians. It's to us today. It's a letter from God. It's an inspired word of God. It's a letter that's breathed out by God. And it's for us today. And it's to be read as a letter. You want to see the photo in the cereal box? Yeah, read the whole letter through to see. Just a little caveat here. I know there'll be times when you'll read just portions of an epistle like Ephesians. But in this initial stage, remember, we're surveying the book. We're trying to get what? The big picture, right? We're reading it to survey it, to see the forest through the trees that we can see and fight to see that main idea. So number one, number one in the inductive steps, it's the literary question. It's a letter. I'm number two. The historical question. Who wrote it? And when was the book written? Well, who wrote it? Do we know? Okay. Verse 1, Paul. Very first word in an English text, right? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. All right? That's helpful. If Paul wrote it, when did he write it? Do we have any clues in this book as to when Paul might have written this letter, presumably to the Ephesians. Long time ago. We don't have any dates, do we? We don't. Okay. What do we see that? Okay. Actually, we see it particularly, I think the term in the ESV is a prisoner for Christ. We see it in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 as well. So there we have two distinct references as well to Paul as a prisoner. He also says in Ephesians, I think it is, where is it? 3, uh, uh, 3.13. I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. It's still a little vague. 
But putting these two prisoner references and suffering together, most likely, right? Seems pretty apparent. Paul was in prison. Could have been when he was in Ephesus. Could have been in Caesarea. Caesarea. Or could have been, most likely, his Roman imprisonment. Now, we don't know for sure the text doesn't go that far, but we know he was a prisoner. We also know there was other books that he wrote while he was a prisoner. Namely, the book of Colossians. In fact, Colossians, as we'll find out, shares a lot in common with the book of Ephesians. Won't go into all the reasons why, but because of his close association with the Colossians, I think it is plausible that it was written during his Roman imprisonment. When was that? Do a little checking on that. Around 61, 62 AD. Once again, don't know for sure. We do know it's Paul as a prisoner, most likely in Rome, writing, it would appear, to the Ephesians. Around 61 or 62 AD. Well, who was he writing to? Do we find it here? Yeah, this is interesting. Okay. Second part of verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Okay. Let's talk about that. Had Paul been to Ephesus? Do you know? He had been. No, I don't think so. Yes, he had been to Ephesus. In fact, he'd been there more than once. Possibly twice. Look at Acts 18 and Acts 19. We read there that he visited Ephesus on his, initially on a second missionary journey, then came back about a year later and visited on his third missionary journey. But it says, I believe, in Acts 19 that he was there about two, two and a half years in Ephesus. So it would seem that Paul would have been well acquainted with the church in Ephesus. At least some personal time was spent there ministering in Ephesus. 